0: Welcome back for another episode of the It's Murder, Y'all podcast. I'm your host, Amber, and with me today is a man who's got dumps like a truck, my husband, Rob. Say hey, Rob.
1: Howdy, howdy, shawty thick. Yeah,
0: I just just stick with the butt theme because I did it for the last episode. So this episode is part two of the Santa Claus murders. If you have not listened to the previous episode, please go do that now because you're going to be confused otherwise. So to get everybody caught up, Just a quick recap of the previous episode. We were introduced to Kim Daniels. She had grown up in foster care. She had lost her kids, got them back. Things were great. She's married to Danny Daniels, has this great life with her kids, his daughter, Jessica, their three adopted kids. And then Jerry Scott Heidler comes into their life. He was the brother of one of their previous foster children and he is unwell. And when we last left off, A baby that may or may not have been his had just died. He had spent the evening drinking at Jerry Johnson's house. He has now stolen Jerry's van and he is on the way to the home of Kim and Danny Daniels. So again, this is sometime between like very late on December the 3rd, which again was Kim and Danny's anniversary and the very early morning hours of December 4th. We don't exactly know the timeline. So, it was sometime in that time period that I just said, when Scott pulled into the Daniels driveway. Scott had spent a quite a bit of time at this house, so he knew exactly where to go and exactly what he was looking for. He grabbed his stepladder from the shed and put it under the bathroom window, which is about seven feet off the ground. He climbed the ladder, pushed the small window open, and slid his lanky, skinny little body through the window and onto the back of the toilet. I would like to add here that Kim and Danny had actually had a security system installed about three weeks prior but it hadn't been working. It had been on Kim's to-do list to call and have it checked out, but she just never got around to it. But if that alarm had been working, the rest of the story probably would have never happened. Scott sits on the toilet for like five or ten minutes just contemplating his life choices, I guess, before making his way out of the bathroom, leaving a scuff mark on a baseboard with his boot on the way out. He originally walked down towards Danny and Kim's bedroom, but turned around so he could go crack the back door and smoke some cigarettes, which he then mushed into their carpet. Like a giant asshole, he then walked down the hallway to the gun cabinet that was outside Kim and Danny's bedroom door. He quietly removed the eleven hundred—I don't know if that's how you say it—eleven hundred Remington shotgun. Is that how you would say that, Rob?
1: Uh, people would probably call it a Remington eleven hundred.
0: Okay, a Remington eleven hundred shotgun, and loaded it with buckshot. I'm going to stop here and say two things. Number one, there were, of course, some consistencies in the research on the exact order of these events. I'm going to outline them based on what was presented in the book, Fear Came to Town, which quotes the prosecution's outline of events. Number two, things are about to get real graphic. So please skip ahead a few minutes if that is not your thing. Also, I forgot to include in the beginning of this episode, trigger warning, child murder, child sexual assault. Here we go. So with Danny's Remington 1100 shotgun in his hands, Scott crept into Kim and Danny's bedroom and shot them both. I'm not clear on exactly where Kim was shot. One report said her face. Another said her head, another said her stomach, and many sources didn't specifically state where she was shot at all, and I couldn't find the autopsy. Uh, Authorities would later say, though, that Kim most likely either died immediately or she maybe lived for a couple minutes but was probably unconscious the whole time, thankfully. Danny, though, had been shot in the chest, and he was not immediately incapacitated, so Scott shot him again. Scott then walked out of Kim and Danny's room and headed to the boys' room. Four-year-old Corey, their foster son, hid in the closet, But their eight-year-old son, Bryant, paralyzed with fear, stayed on the top bunk, squeezed his teddy bear, and buried his head into his pillows. Scott walked over, placed the shotgun barrel to Bryant's head, and pulled the trigger. According to the various sources, that shotgun blast blew poor Bryant's head off. As Deputy Carlin would say later, and again, that was the deputy that found the crime scene, he found what was left of Bryant. And in fear came to town, it was written that, quote, the little boy was, for all intents and purposes, decapitated, end quote. And Rob, I'd asked you a little bit about the logistics because I don't know anything about guns, but I didn't want to give you...
1: Buckshot out of a 12-gauge will, for all intents and purposes, fuck shit up.
0: Right. Like, especially, like, barrel two head. Yeah. That I just, I like, I can't fathom it. And I said this in the last episode, but I saw the crime scene photos. They had blurred out Bryant's body, but, like, the walls. The walls... The ceiling, the window, like it there, there was like just blood and tissue everywhere. It was, it was shocking. And I've seen a lot of crime scene photos because I'm a weirdo, um, but I can't. Poor Deputy Michael Harlan. I, I don't know. I don't know how you recover from that. Of what he just saw and what he's about to see, is unfathomable. It's crazy. So Scott has now murdered Bryant, and he turns around and he heads back in the hallway towards the bathroom where he ran into 16-year-old Jesse. Now remember, he had had a thing for Jesse, but Danny had put a stop to that, and so he had not seen Jesse in two years. Little Corey would later tell police that, quote, Jesse was fighting with that boy in the bathroom, end quote. Seemingly terrified, Jesse ran out of the bathroom and towards her parents' room. Deputy Harlan later said in an interview that he thought that Jesse had run towards where she figured safety was at, which is with her daddy. She made it just inside the doorway to her parents' bedroom before Scott shot her in the back of the head and blew apart a good portion of her skull i read somewhere that it essentially basically she didn't have a face
1: again buckshot in a 12 I, gauge is that's tracks
0: <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how close he was to her but this is not really helpful for anyone but me and you but i would imagine no farther than like our bedroom door and the dog gate that would be like the max length
1: i mean and so like that's 15 20 feet at best right and that's going to be about the distance anybody dealing with a home intruder and in firearms is going to be i mean i don't know i'm i'm i don't know the facts but it from my general knowledge on the, the subject i feel like um yeah 15 20 feet maybe even closer than that but once it starts going down in a house man you know unless you got a big ass house then right. and they you know, didn't
0: I the thing that gets me too is just the terror that that those people were going through. Like Jesse's trying to get her daddy and then then she basically has her face blown off. And, you know, poor Bryant, he's just sitting there in his bed, hugging his teddy bear, scared out of his mind, and then he no longer has a head. So after shooting Jessica, Scott stepped into the bedroom and he noticed that Danny was still alive. So he shot him one last time. According to the prosecutor's opening statement in the later trial, quote, one of the pellets from the shotgun blast went through his eye, through his head, and took his life. End quote. That was a hypothetical situation I was asking you about the other night. Of
1: oh, absolutely could,
0: could a pellet, like a rogue pellet, hit somebody in the eye and kill them?
1: One hundred percent. I mean, if it may, if if by freak chance that one pellet hit right and directly of, of his squishy eyeball, it's. I mean. Once it gets to the eyeball, everything behind there is real squishy until you hit the back of the skull.
0: Right. And Deputy Harlan touched on this a little bit in one of those shows I watched, but like I'm not a dad. uh, Turns out I'm a mom, but, and I know you feel this, like dads have this, like they feel like it is their job to protect the family. And so people
1: pay other people pretty, I wouldn't say hefty. I'm not like no professor, professional security guard or nothing, but you get a you and Olivia get a level of protection from me that I don't think a lot of people are accustomed to, <laughs>
0: right? Like I, I just feel like daddies, like my daddy, I talked about it before. That man is he is a, a squishy little teddy bear, and I love him, but he would go ham on somebody for me or for yeah, our kid, I'm and kidding. and I feel like that's how all daddies are. And so knowing that Danny wasn't dead yet, I'm you
1: about my kid, I right? Mean, I'll kill you about my kid.
0: (laughs) So Danny is, he's in his bed. He's been shot in the chest. He's not dead, but he's, he's conscious, but he can't get up. And then his Jessica was killed in the doorway to his bedroom. So he saw that. And I'm sure he heard the shotgun of when Scott killed Bryant. So I, I can't imagine how powerless that would be to know that there's nothing you can do for your kids in that moment, Like that would have to be the worst. So at this point, Scott has now killed four members of the Daniels family. He would later say that he heard eight-year-old Brooke call out his name and it snapped him out of his trance that he said he was in. He grabbed Brooke, Amanda, and Amber and told them they needed to come with him, that someone was in the house and he was saving them. He ushered the girls, who were by now terrified and crying because, you know, they're ages eight to ten, he ushered them to the maroon and gray van waiting outside. Four-year-old Corey was standing at the window screaming for his sisters and Scott raised the shotgun and pointed it at the little boy. Thankfully, he eventually lowered the gun got in the van and drove away kidnapping three little girls and leaving two little boys alone in a house with four dead bodies which talk about trauma like and if you remember if you remember to the beginning of the last episode like Corey was hiding under a table but he told harlan he knew his mom and daddy were dead which i didn't say this in the first episode but Corey actually told deputy harlan mom and daddy are dead brother guy killed them so i don't know if you remember but I'd mentioned Danny's best friend, Guy Aaron. Well, little Corey, being little, he'd only seen one other guy, besides his, besides Danny, you know, messing with a gun, and it was Guy. So he got confused and thought that Scott was Danny's best friend, Guy. Yeah. So that was bad for Guy for a little bit. And then poor little Gabriel, ten months old, holding onto the sheets next to his mama, trying to wake her up, like. Even though, you know, 10 months old, you don't consciously remember it. There's no way that that's not hidden deep down somewhere. Oh, yeah. In the back, they were foster kids, which we're going to talk about that more in a minute. That's just, that's a lot of trauma for a little person to deal with.
1: That's a trauma multiplier, we call that.
0: For sure. So as Scott drove down the dark streets, Amber asked what was happening. And Scott explained that someone had been in the house and that Kim and Danny had already left and that Scott was saving them. Amber kept asking Scott more questions until finally he admitted that he had lied and he'd actually kidnapped them. So now the girls were confused and terrified. Amber would later say that, you know, they were confused at first, but they had known Scott to be this, you know, kind of weird guy, but he'd always been really nice to the kids. So he, they believed him that he was taking them to safety. And then for him to be like, nope, I lied. I'm kidnapping you. That was a really terrifying moment. Scott drove to a bridge just over the county line and pulled into a secluded side road underneath the bridge. At that point, he made Brooke and Amanda get in the front seat while he sexually assaulted Amber in the back seat. When he was done, he got back in the driver's seat and started driving. He stopped on top of the bridge and made the girls get out of the van. He then went over to the edge of the bridge and tossed the gun into the river below. Amber knew this was their best shot to get away, so she told the girls to run. Scott ended up grabbing Brooke and told the other girls that if they didn't get into the van, he would throw Brooke into the river just like he had thrown the gun so, all three girls got back in the van. Scott continued driving until he got to his hometown of Alma. He pulled off into a dead end road and left the girls there barefoot in nightgowns and almost freezing temperatures. The girls then started on their journey to help to find help and ended up at the home of the couple in the beginning of last episode with the barking dog. The girls were taken to the sheriff's office where they were interviewed by GBI agents or by a GBI agent and a fact social worker who was trained in working with children who were testify- testifying about things that they'd been through. Amanda, who was Danny and Kim's foster daughter, who was eight or nine years old, was the first to be interviewed, and she told them everything she knew and everything that she'd experienced. The GBI agent provided her with several photos and asked her to look through them and pick out anyone who looked like the man who'd kidnapped her. After looking at several of the photos, she stopped at one and let the agent know that that was Scott, the man who put them in the van and did bad things. Brooke and Amber were interviewed next, and Brooke and Amber were Kim's biological daughters. I watched part of Amber's testimony in one of the shows uh, that I watched. And it was it was heartbreaking because there's this 10 year old little girl like she's the age of our daughter. And she was so sweet and so innocent and smart as a whip. But she had just been brutalized. Like, I'm not going into details, but you'll learn some of them just by the charges that he gets charged with of like the absolute worst things that he could do. He did to this girl. And she's having to recount what had just happened to her. But she was so smart and so detailed with her answers. She could even describe the pattern of the fabric on the seats in the van. Like She had so many details that she could give. and She was also given a stack of photos, and she also picked out the person that she knew as Scott Taylor. Because again, we remember from the first episode, he told people that his name was Scott Taylor when really his name was Jerry Scott Hodler. While the girls were being questioned, the crime scene investigators were at the Daniels home looking for any evidence they could find. Thankfully, Scott's a dumbass, and he left a lot behind, including those cigarette butts that he had mushed into the carpet, which had his DNA on them. At a GBI office in Douglas, Georgia, Special Agent Bill Butler is poring over all the crime reports from the past 12 hours, hoping that he could find anything to link to the Daniels murders. Because, again, all they have right now is just a guy named Scott Taylor. They don't know who he is or anything like that. So the report of a stolen van jumped out at, at Agent Butler, and he remembered that the little girls had said they'd been put into a van so he sent Agent Jerry Rowe, which is like the third Jerry in the story, to go chat with Jerry Johnson, the second Jerry in the story.
1: Our neighbor Jerry gave me cookies today.
0: He did, and I've still not and had. They one. are
1: fire. Go Jerry's wife. Yes. Shout out to you, sister. Them some yes. bitches. Woo. Little peanut butter scenario going on.
0: That was sweet. How he he like stopped you as we were getting out. Well, he yelled
1: cute. at me. He said, "I'm sorry for yelling at you, Rob." So it's okay, Jerry.
0: I need to meet him. I was having a moment. Jerry
1: um, is as solid as they come.
0: If I could bake, I'd I'd take him something. So, Agent Jerry, Agent Jerry Rowe, went to go chat with Jerry Johnson, whose van had been stolen. And Jerry Johnson said that he was pretty sure that Jerry Scott Hidler had been the one to steal his van. Well, again, the three girls had said they were kidnapped by Scott Taylor, and so those names don't match. Although, you would think they'd be like, oh, they both have a Scott in their name, but whatever. Around that same time, GBI agents were working with DFACS workers in Tombs County to go through the foster records for the Daniels family to see if someone, you know, may have had a score to settle for some reason. They couldn't find anybody named Scott Taylor in the records, but they did find the name of a little girl from Alma who'd stayed with the Daniels for about 10 weeks, a couple of years earlier. So they know that the kids, the girls were dropped off in Alma and that the van was stolen from Alma. So that they see that as kind of a connection. And, you know, that little girl was, of course, Joanne Mosley. And she had siblings whose last names were Heidler and Jerry Johnson had mentioned a Heidler. So GBI were like, you know, this is worth, this is worth looking into. So they decided to do a casual little drive by over at Latrell Mosley's place. And that's Scott's shit ass mama. But in their minds, they're like, there's no way this fan is going to be at Latrell's house. Because how stupid would you have to be? Like, surely this thing's going to be, it's going to be stripped or it's going to be abandoned somewhere. It's going to be pushed into a river or something. But no, uh, Jerry Scott Heidler is a moron, and police find that maroon and gray van parked right outside his mama's house. And at one point, because they've, like, staked out the house at this point, Scott walks out the door, makes eye contact with Agent Jerry Rowe, and at that point, Scott's soul left his body, and he ran back inside the house. So Agent Rowe called for backup, and then they walked up and knocked on the door to Latrell's house. Scott's older brother, Stephen, the one that had threatened to beat his stepfather to death with a table leg, comes to the door, and he says that Scott's not there, but... Obviously he is. He is because they literally just saw him. So uh, they were apparently, since they had seen Scott, they were able to go search the house without a warrant. Like I didn't know that was a thing, but they cuff Stephen because yeah. he's there. Lied. Are a couple
1: of uh, like um, specific reasons they can enter a house without a warrant, like like if for a welfare check and shit like that.
0: Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they cuff Stephen to get him out of the way, and they start searching the house while they have some deputies looking around outside. One of the deputies sees a board that's covering like a crawl space and it looked like it had been recently moved. So they removed the board and they're hiding under his mama's house was scary. was scary. Was Jerry Scott Heidler who was promptly arrested. Scott was taken to the police office and interrogated by GBI agents, Lee Sweat and Dan McManus. That's Scott a had,
1: detective name. If I've ever heard one.
0: I know. Also, I forgot to put this in the episode, but McManus.
1: So, what do you think?
0: So, oh. you know, this is our, this is our Christmas episode, which, Hell of a Christmas episode, but because it's in Santa Claus, Georgia, but one of the articles that I got information from the author of that newspaper article was named Jingle Davis. And I was like, Jingle?
1: That that is a lifelong Santa Claus resident?
0: I don't know, but it would be funny if they were. It's just funny. Jingle writing about Santa Claus. It's funny. It's funny in a case that is very not funny. So during the entire- yeah. During the interrogation, Scott admitted that he killed the Daniels family, but he claimed that he didn't remember what happened. That He felt like he was in a dream or like in a trance, which you know, is a he did. cop out. So a few days later. It was just an de-
1: adrenaline dump, duh, guy. That's all that yeah. was.
0: So a few days later, on December the 8th, which is my best friend Elizabeth's birthday, Jerry Scott Heidler made his first court appearance and was charged with four counts of murder, three counts of kidnapping and one count of burglary. And there would be additional charges added later that we'll talk about. Coincidentally, or ironically, I guess, the funerals of Kim, Danny, Jessica, and Bryant also took place on December the 8th. Around 600 people showed up for the funeral, and classmates from Jesse's school donated money to pay for her dress and angel locket that she was buried in, which I thought was so sweet. Santa Claus and the surrounding areas were devastated by the Daniels family murders, and they were out for vengeance. A man was quoted in the book Fear Came to Town as saying, quote, If the police just let him go... I can guarantee it'll be taken care of real fast. They'll never know who killed him, but they'll get a call to where to find that punk's messed up body. End quote. There were a lot of other quotes too. People were were real mad, rightfully so, because yeah,
1: he was a shit ass. It,
0: he was because the Daniels family was so beloved in the community, and emotions were running so high. It was clear that Scott would not be able to get a fair trial in Toombs County. So his attorneys would eventually request a change of venue, which the prosecutors actually agreed to, if for no other reason than they didn't want there to be anything that could cause a verdict to be overturned later, which it's smart. Like, there's no way that he you couldn't get an impartial jury, which I mean, I feel like any if anyone had heard about this story, they can't be impartial. Like this was like the most innocent family that were brutally murdered for no reason. So. There would be a fair amount of time between Scott's arrest and his eventual trial, and in the meantime, he was showing his ass in jail. When his court-appointed t- attorney, Kathy Palmer, came to visit Scott in jail for the first time, one of the deputies pulled her to the side and was like, hey, I want to show you something. So he led her to Scott's cell, where there on a, on a blanket were two babies made out of tissue paper. One was like a life-sized baby, and the other one was like just a couple inches long, and that one, for whatever reason, it's had its head inside of a, a paper cup, which I don't, it's kind of weird. But that—that's weird. Like we know, we know that that baby dying had a, had an impact on him. But bro, you making you making tissue paper babies?
1: That's some weird shit.
0: Yeah, people would say that like he would burn them later, almost like voodoo dolls, because we know that his mama was into voodoo. It's very weird. So after the uh, tissue paper babies, which he kept making. Scott started covering his wall, the walls of his cell, and some substance that looked like blood, but wasn't blood. And oddly enough, the jailers never, like during his entire stay, they never figured out what he was using to make the blood. Like They searched his cell. They couldn't find anything. So to this day, they don't know what it was, but they said it looked just like blood, which fucking weird. Scott also stopped showering and brushing his teeth, though by the looks of him, he probably didn't do either of those things very regularly before jail anyways, but as the one year anniversary of the murders approached, Scott's sneaky shiftiness started to come out and he began removing locks from doors and hiding them. And then he fucked with a smoke alarm in his cell so that it would make people think there was a fire in another part of the jail. Like he, he was, as you're going to learn, he was good with like fiddling with shit. If he could have just used that for good, he could have been really successful. He, he could, I bet he would have been good at doing what you do because he could fix shit and like finagle shit. But no. Instead, he's in jail doing shit like this.
1: Man, I had about a half hour spread of tooling on some surgical instruments today where I was like, who boy, you a bad man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just funny. Sometimes I'm just in going through the motions and it's, it's very, very humdrum. And sometimes something's in bad shape and it goes from in bad shape to looking fairly brand new with what felt like a little effort and i'm like oh that was nice i don't know
0: this is very random and off topic but i was just thinking like i don't know if you remember like a couple years ago i I went to the career day at our kids school but you Mm -hmm. can't you can't explain to children what i do you tell kids what
1: college classes to take yeah like well not well not now but
0: not anymore but like i can't even explain really good to adults what i do and so i realized like oh i can't do this but they also put me next to someone who's like a an amateur wrestler. You I'm lose. like, excuse me, what you um, gonna do, brother? And she was a lady wrestler too. But so I think that what you was she do, like a
1: strong lady. I don't remember.
0: I mean, I'd imagine she's a wrestler. She well, I mean, did she wrestler? look like a
1: strong? You know what I mean? Was she like a a hefty, muscly she was, lady? Like
0: she was stocky. She was like stocky. she was like. Did probably, she
1: look more like a? a roller derby chick than a wrestler
0: she looked like what a lot of the um professional female wrestlers look like were they like they're more femme if that makes sense oh
1: i i get i got you yeah
0: but so i was just thinking as you were talking your job i think is something that could go and kids would think was neat like if you which they would want to touch your stuff they, Every they...
1: time I'm walking through a hospital, rolling my cart with with the stuff that I repaired, and sometimes the stuff is in like these bins with lids on them, and you can't see in there. But sometimes stuff's not always in those containers, and it's kind of out, and people can see it. And it's like it's like people slowing down to look at a car crash. Everybody like stops and is like slows down to looks in there, and like looks at all the scissors and the clamps and shit, and it's it's crazy looking shit when you don't know what you're looking at. You know what I mean? It's just funny.
0: People are nosy. People are
1: just like, oh, this is funny.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, Scott's been fucking around with things in the jail. He had also, he'd been prescribed Haldol, which isn't, I hope I'm saying that right, which is an antipsychotic, but instead of taking it, because if you remember, he didn't like taking his Ritalin either. I guess he's not a medicine taker. Yeah. He, he would do drugs though. He had hide the, like he would pretend he took it. He would hide it under his mattress and then he had tried to trade it for like cigarettes and stuff because he tried to convince the other inmates that it would get them high which it it wouldn't because it that's not what it is and there was there was one inmate i read a story about i didn't put it in here but scott had given him the howl and like he he started having a seizure or whatever and scott's just like standing there hysterically laughing at him and scott doesn't laugh at anything so it's like bruh but people were beginning to think that he was acting crazy so that he could plead not guilty by reason of insanity and they do that but it's like we you you putting on a little bit too much like you're we know you're acting we know you're crazy but not yeah. like not guilty by reason of insanity crazy you just crazy crazy he was also getting off on all the attention and notoriety he was getting because like for once in his life he was being noticed and given attention even if it was bad as we talked about in the last episode like kids that are starved for attention they don't care if it's positive or negative they just want attention
1: yeah
0: so scott had to have a psychological evaluation of course and the doctors came to three major conclusions and i'm going to quote them on these so first one is based upon our clinical evaluation it is our opinion that mr hadler is competent to proceed to trial on the charges specified so they they found that he is competent to stand trial because in some cases so if you think back to our episode number three um the pet store the the fish murders he was found not competent to to stand trial, like they they didn't even do a trial for him because he was so incapacitated. Yeah. Second finding: It is our opinion that around December fourth, nineteen ninety seven, when all the alleged acts were committed, Mister Heidler knew right from wrong and knew the wrongfulness of all the acts with which he stands charged. It is our opinion also that Mr. Heidler was not suffering from a mental disorder involving delusional thinking. And that at the time the acts were committed, he was not experiencing a delusional compulsion, which overmastered his will. Basically he can't plead mentally ill. Like he was in his right mind. He knew right from wrong. And so he's competent and he, he was enough in his right mind that he could be tried. And then the third opinion is It is our opinion that there is ample mitigating evidence which may be used by the court in its disposition phase of the trial. This evidence could also support a finding of guilty but mentally ill. So guilty but mentally ill is basically, I mean, obviously guilty, but the mentally ill part comes along in the punishment phase because it's unconstitutional to to put people to death that are severely mentally ill or like developmentally incapacitated in any kind of way. So they're saying, hey, he's got enough going on that you could find him guilty but mentally ill and like we'd sign off on it. So the doctors acknowledged Scott's history of medical, psychological, and behavioral issues. They confirmed that he had been an alcoholic since he was 11 years old and that he'd previously been diagnosed with socialized aggressive conduct disorder. Now I'd not heard of socialized aggressive conduct disorder and from what I could find, it's not really a thing. Basically, it's just conduct disorder. Now, it is possible that it was a thing back in the day when, like in the 80s, when Scott was originally diagnosed, since a lot of conditions have been renamed. So for instance, ADD became ADHD, manic depression became bipolar, Asperger's became just part of autism spectrum disorder. So it could have been a thing, but now it's just straight conduct disorder. So let's talk for a minute about conduct disorder, because this is something, as we'll learn, that that can and often does impact foster children. So, according to a paper in the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology, conduct disorder or CD is defined as a repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior that violates the rights of others or in which major age-appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. So basically it's like fuck your rules, I'm going to do what I want to. It often involves aggression, it is highly related to criminal behavior, and is associated with a lot of with a host of other social, emotional, and academic problems. CD in childhood predicts later problems in adolescence and adulthood, including mental health problems, for instance, substance abuse, legal problems, for instance, risk for arrest, educational problems, for instance, school dropout, social problems, occupational problems, poor job performance, can't get a job, and physical health. Childhood onset CD is distinguished by the presence of significant levels of callous, unemotional traits. So this is characterized by a lack of guilt, a lack of concern about the feelings of others, a lack of concern about performance in important activities, and shallow or deficient affect, which, for example, does not express feelings or show emotions to others, except in ways that seem shallow or superficial or when they are used for gain. So that definitely sounds a lot like Scott, like he did not show emotion. And in terms of the callous unemotional traits, like basically, it's almost like they're little psychopaths. Like, they're doing this shit and they don't care. They don't care about your rules. They don't feel bad about it. Like, they, you know, fuck everything, basically. A literature review, and I'm sure that you saw a lot of these kids when you were in foster care. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I'll set this place on fire and not give a shit. Yeah. Which I feel like also... I told also...
1: you, I, I, th- I th- I'm sure I mentioned it in the previous episode at one point in time, but I have been uh, witness to a lot of Oh, that snuck up on me.
0: I just heard you. (laughs)
1: Excuse me.
0: What's funny is I heard you in your office before I heard you for my headphones. And that was really funny.
1: Sorry, that snuck up on me. But I was witness to a lot of tantrums or episodes or whatever. You know what I mean? But fuck this shit. I'm no, not today. You know, crazy. I've just I've seen a little bit of of it all.
0: And I mean... What I would think would be hard too is I feel like anybody in those situations, especially with a lot of stuff that you had to deal with, would get to a position where they were like, "Fuck this shit!" Like you were the same.
1: I had my own moments. You know what I mean? I there were, I I was very guilty of having my own moments because, as a foster kid, I just from my experience, you know the the people that you could that you actually feel like give a shit are very few and far between, and even some of those people that do give a shit, they're their give a shit can be misplaced or there's only so much they can do. And the only thing they can do is basically tell you they give a shit. You know what I mean? Right. And so as much as they want to help or make your life better, they can't. They can just be like, yo, I'm here for you. And as a foster kid, that's kind of like... For for me as a foster kid, that was kind of felt pointless and hopeless. You know what I mean? Right. So there are a lot of times where I still to this day, deal with, like, the effects of feeling burnt out. Like, when I get burnt out, in general, if I'm, like, burnt out from not enough sleep or, you know, just whatever it is, not, you know, overstimulated, whatever, those emotions are sometimes difficult to regulate because of all the overstimulation that I have experienced, I think, as a young fella.
0: Yeah, I would say not only the overstimulation, but also you weren't... You weren't taught how to self-regulate oh, in a healthy shit, no. way. And no. and there was no one to model it. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like you're just thrown out in the world and like, figure it out. Good luck. And then add on to that, you know, triggers and trauma is like, it's, you know, it's a lot to expect of from a person. So a literature review by Engler et al., showed that numerous studies have demonstrated that children in foster care have higher rates of various mental health disorders, including attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, depression, anxiety, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, reactive attachment disorder, and behavioral problems, as compared with the general population. Of course, like, of course. I I would imagine that just about any kid that was in the foster care system has some form of PTSD. either. Complex PTSD, just from you know the the uncertainty and the the different environments, or PTSD PTSD from anything that may have happened that got them into foster care. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, you know, Scott was diagnosed with ADHD, and I had to I, do I have it in here somewhere. I don't know if I have it in here somewhere, but something like I think kids in foster care are three times more likely to have a diagnosis of ADHD, and part of me is like because this is something that we've run into with our daughter and like that I ran into as a woman with ADHD is the only time that you get a diagnosis or you get any treatment or any acknowledgement of your disorder is if it negatively impacts other people. Like I was a good kid. I never got in trouble. All of my struggles were very internal. And with our kid, she's the teacher's pet. She's so good that we can't get an ADHD diagnosis because it's like, well, she's not disruptive enough. And so what I think happens sometimes is these kids, they're disruptive, maybe not necessarily because of ADHD. And I'm sure that some do have ADHD, but a lot of them it's probably trauma and it's probably acting out because of, you know, the chaos that's going on inside of them and outside of them. And it's just like, you know what? You are a little boy that can't sit still. You got ADHD here. Let me give you all of the medicine and it's just it's frustrating because i feel like it's it's putting a band-aid and in in the words of the queen taylor swift band-aids don't fix bullet holes yeah and i feel like and you experience this it's like here's your prescription that's gonna fix you and good luck oh they
1: shoved medicine all down my gullet this you know i I have been heavily medicated i still don't like taking medication because all that
0: right and then it's no wonder that children from foster care populations are more likely to be addicted as they get older. Well, yeah, you've been pumping them full of everything to sedate them and make them be quiet. So no wonder that is something that they would be likely to fall into. And you're lucky that that's not something that, you know, that's not where you are in your life right now, but a lot of people, yeah, that, that is where they ended up.
1: Here's the thing about foster care. And this is something that I thought about after the, we talked uh, after our other episode. And so like, it's my experience, in my opinion, that the foster care system, the, the Department of Child Care Services, whatever it is in each state or the country, their goal isn't to, you know, they procure their funding and they, their approach is, how do we take care of these kids? Or how do, we, how do we get them clothed? How do we get them fed? How do we get them sheltered? You know, how do we get them to therapy on time? How do we make sure, you know, to get them to the school? Yada, yada, yada. None of it, if maybe some people and maybe some instances there are, but in my opinion, it's not geared toward how do we nurture these sons of bitches so they don't end up, you know, being, you know, on the wrong side of society, you know, struggling and with drug problems. Like, how do we, what do we do? to right some of the wrongs that happened to them that made them end up in the foster care system in the first place yeah they'll put them in therapy but you know what i mean they're not going to let you just jump around a therapist after therapist and and until and the one that you like works you just kind of they just sh- you know what i mean it's there's no depth to the child care services system and at, as a whole
0: right and you know with the therapy piece i feel like it's going to be particularly hard for foster care children to build a trusting relationship with a therapist. And then it's very easy for that therapist to, if they do gain that trust, to lose it. Like if they, if the kid has said something in that session that then the therapist has a talk with the social worker or the foster parents or whoever about, like you've now lost that kid's trust forever and you may make it to where they don't ever trust therapy ever again. Have you met me? (laughs) I know. I wasn't going to call you out, but so yeah, that's, that's one of You know, one of many, many pieces of it. More stuff that I found in my research was children in foster care transitioning to adulthood are up to four times as likely to have mental health disorders as children not in foster care. And that's the thing too that we touched on the last episode of when you're out, you're out. And so even if you have been getting mental health treatment
1: It's gone now, unless you somehow got insurance.
0: Right, exactly. Probably
1: doubtful considering they don't do anything. To help you after you're out
0: and one thing that i found interesting a, a, a statistic i found was even when compared to children not in foster care in similar socioeconomic situations children in foster care are three to four times more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder so basically like because obviously you ain't got much when you're in foster care but foster care children compared to other kids that ain't got shit but that live with their parents the foster kids are still three times three to four times more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder. So, obviously, foster care is not great for children. Perhaps, perhaps, it is not the best solution to the problem necessarily. Again, Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. And I could go off on several soapboxes.
1: I have an incredible hot take about that, about people bearing children.
0: Am I going to have to edit this out later?
1: I don't know. I mean, I just, I I think, to that... Having having a child, I think there should be some prerequisites to 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 bear children and there should be maybe some fees associated with such or or something or there should be a test or I just people out here indiscriminately having children. And then, you know, everybody else in society having to pick up those pieces and failing what seems to be like mostly miserably, in my opinion, just I don't know. I just, I just personally think there are too many people in the world in general.
0: You do. You frequently.
1: Uh, there are just far too many.
0: You and Bill Burr. But,
1: but, uh, yeah, I think that. I mean, I think that. You know, the problem with foster care is that it is so layered and so there, there are so many little tiny holes in the boat that it's just taking on water from everywhere, and that it's just, you know, there's so many people with buckets the the people that really, really give a shit and, you know, they're just keeping it floating. It's not, there's no progress. There's no, I just, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And the pe the people that give a shit are fighting against the people that gave a shit and are burnt out. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, and whatever state or County or wherever the hell you're at as a foster kid, you know, it depends on, you know, I've been through the gambit of people that took care of me, people that I could clearly tell didn't give a shit and people that I could clearly tell did and all in between burnt out. You know, you can tell, you could tell.
0: I feel like more needs to go into however they decide who gets to be foster parents because I feel like if you're going to foster, you need to be prepared to treat that child as if they were your child and not treat them as an other because I know experiences that you had in some homes and there, was, oh, yeah. uh, there were experiences that that Kim had talked about, there was she talked about a family where you know they'd have family dinner and she had to sit out on the back porch and eat a butter sandwich. Like if you aren't in a place, I have never where
1: experienced you, anything quite like that. Well, but. not
0: that bad, but I'm sure there were times where like you saw those kids get all these birthday presents or all these Christmas presents, and you you did not get that.
1: Yeah, Christmas has been a sore sore subject for many 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 years.
0: And. That like we talked about, that was the case with Kim. That's why she wanted to make it so special for her kids. And so I think that you know, once our kid was born, and you kind of you know were able to make Christmas good for her, I think to an extent that's helped she your has feelings. Been so
1: jacked up for Christmas this year.
0: I'm so jazzed for her. Like she, I think she's gonna be so excited. Yeah, like I I'm, like I'm I'm ready for it to be Christmas just to watch her open present. But I think that that has helped you. A little my bit beef with
1: Christmas a, a, little. a little bit, but Hey, we were listening to Christmas music today, but
0: we were. That is a huge step because you used to, you mm-mm, you were not about Christmas music. I just know I need to stick to Feliz Navidad, the Chipmunks, Porky Pig, novelties. Yeah. Stick to the novelties and you're good. Although don't think I want sneak samurai carry in there. I like that
1: Nat King Cole shit.
0: Oh yeah, you did say that in the car today. Well, when you're not around, me and the little one, we'd be listening to.
1: I like, the, uh, the instantly... Was that, uh, Paul McCartney one?
0: Oh, I forgot. That's a good one. Ooh, what about the one by Wham? Because you like 80s music, The Last Christmas.
1: I don't know if I'm familiar Last with that. Last
0: Christmas.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I like the Taylor Swift version because I'm a Swifty.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. But so, back to uh, children in foster care. In the literature review, the authors surmise that children in foster care experience more mental health disorders as a response to either the circumstances that led to being removed from their homes or the experience of being placed in foster care, which I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B because in most cases, in order to get to foster care, some bad shit had to happen to you as a kid. And so you have trauma from the bad shit, and then you have this shitty experience in foster care. So, of course, like that's going to impact your mental health. And also, I don't know if you know this, but... They're starting to to come out and say that certain health conditions, so ADHD, autism, polycystic ovarian syndrome, POTS, which I have, that those can be caused by trauma. So basically, it, it kind of comes down to like a nature versus nurture of, I, I've heard, I heard a professor explain it one time of like, when it comes to things like mental illness or whatever, genetics loads the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So it's like with alcoholism, like you could have the genes to be an alcoholic. But if you grow up in a healthy environment where you don't, you know, you're not drawn to turn to alcohol, you're not going to become an alcoholic. And so it can be the same thing where like you genetically you're predisposed to have ADHD. But if you live in a supportive environment, then you're probably not going to may not necessarily get it. But you are more likely to if you have experienced trauma or just a not supportive environment in general. So I thought, that, I thought that was interesting. So back to Scott. According to Fear Came to Town, the book that I've used as a source for a lot of this story, the doctors who evaluated him also acknowledged that, quote, he required treatment for his mental and emotional disorders at a very early age and that he often didn't receive the appropriate treatment, end quote. So basically, his shit-ass mama Luttrell, like didn't give him the help he needed, which are we shocked? No. Because yeah. that makes a lot of sense considering that she had children taken away because of neglect, which... I, I, as a as a mother, as a parent, not only as a mother and a parent, but as we've established, I don't like children and I've never felt maternal ever. Like I was so worried that I was not going to be a good mother because I've never felt like I'm not I feel like this is going to sound weird, especially considering like the career path that I'm in. I don't feel like I'm a, a, a naturally inherently caring person like I kind of stick to myself and that's just what it is. Very maternal to my dogs. I have a thing about dogs. But after having our kid, it, it like flipped a switch in me of like, she's my number one priority all the time ever. Yeah. Like nothing. And I'm someone, you know, I'm working on a doctorate. I've worked, you know, for 15 years to build this career that I'm really proud of. Nothing comes before my kid. Nothing. And so I can't fathom parents that don't feel that way about their children. Like, how do you not think that that? Your kid hung the moon. Like we stay like gassing up our kid because of how awesome we think she is. And like at a at a bare minimum, how do you not at least provide for their their needs? Because if if your kid is getting taken away from for neglect, you're not meeting their basic needs. Like, like how can you do that? How can you look at this piece of you and not want to take care of them? Like it, it I lose so much respect for people that that don't treat their children the way that their children should be treated. It just, I, I just, I, I can't like, I, I I don't understand it because being a mom, like I'm not one of those people that like, Oh, you know, I'm a mom. Cause to me, it's not about being a mom. It's about being a mom to my kid because I love my kid so much. Yeah. And and I just, I get very, I get very upset about things. And then also, you know, loving you as much as I do and knowing what you had to go through. It just makes me want to like punch a lot of people in the throat. So Yeah, Um, I
1: I told you, my my life has been other people letting me the fuck down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, like
1: if you get to know me and you get to like know me, know me, then you have made it past the point of me feeling like you're going to let me down. So piss on you a little bit, like really and truly. So anybody that knows me, knows me. You you pass the test. (laughs) Yes. And the ones who know me already know they passed that test, to be honest with you. Because if you're in my circle, you know, because I tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you're protective of me in like a, you're you're just protective of me. But I'm protective of you in like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty chill. I'm pretty laid back until I'm not. And I will go ham for you. Like, it, 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 I will go ham. Like, I, I told your dad off. I don't know if you remember that, that time. Yeah. Like, I have no problem doing it. I won't stick up for myself. But by God, ain't nobody messing with my husband or my kid my my dash of trash will come out I heard that I can't remember which podcast that comes <laughs> from but my 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 dash of trash will come out my redneck will show and I will get loud because I'm you no know, you've been through too much you're too good of a person and I'm not gonna let people Aww. treat you the way that too many people treated you
1: well now I'm grown and I can tell people to fuck off or you know
0: yeah kick but, rocks. yeah but it's I don't know it' it's sometimes it's hard to do that so. Yeah. Go back to Scott and his stupid mother. So, <laughs> speaking of crazy-ass Latrell, let me tell you what she was up to during this whole time that Scott's in jail. This is not going to be shocking because, of course, she fucking is. She's telling everyone that will listen that he did not kill the Daniels family and that it was a conspiracy against her and Scott and their family, despite the fact that, like, after he was arrested, He looked her in her face and told her that he did it. He told her, Mama, I killed him. And she said, No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He's like, No, I did. She's like, No, you didn't. After the original December the 8th uh, court appearance where he was officially charged with murder, Latrell ran out of the courtroom and straight to the waiting reporters outside, telling them that Scott's confession was just a cover up for the real killer. But she wouldn't name who the real killer was. She told the media, quote, he loved them youngins. He would never hurt them. I've had dreams. I know he didn't do it. End quote. Like, what do you mean you had dreams? Seriously? She also told the Macon Telegraph Brax quote,
1: a funny telegraph. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> she also told the making telegraph quote. I know he's not a killer. If he was going to kill anybody, it would have been his stepfather. End quote. Which is, it's a, it's a weird thing to say. Like, I know he didn't kill him because if he was going to kill somebody, he'd kill this person. Like, okay. So later during the trial, The prosecutor, district attorney, Richard Malone, asked her if she knew why Scott killed the Daniels family. And she very confidently told him that Scott did not kill those people. And so Malone responded, you believe that even though his fingerprints were there, his DNA was there and he's confessed. And she had the the sheer audacity to say, I know I raised him. He did not do that murder, Mm ma'am. With full disrespect, saying that first of all, saying that you raised him was a stretch. Honestly, the fact that you quote, unquote, raised him is probably why we're here in the first place. I, 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 and you you know she said it with her whole chest. Like, with the self-awareness of an eggplant, she said this on, like, in court, on the stand. So then Malone asked about, you know, what about the testimony of the three little girls and what happened? And of course, Latrell chalked that up to d brainwashing the girls, adding, quote, he would never do that. He's always been against molesting kids, end quote. Which, again, that's a weird statement. I feel like we should all be against molesting kids. Like that should even... always.
1: He's always been against that.
0: Yeah, like, should, aren't we all? That should be a given. and we shouldn't have to say that. Uh, second of all, there was physical evidence, like irrefutable physical evidence of what he did to Amber. That, it... but Malone realized that nothing he could say would change Latrell's mind. So he was like, "Okay, you can get down or whatever." Can I just say that people like that make me Hulk rage? Like. Nothing is going to get me heated faster than someone that is so confidently ignorant. Like, it makes me a bad person when I'm around people like that. And it also used to make me get in a lot of fights on Facebook. That's why I had to stop being on Facebook. Because it's like, you can show them irrefutable scientific evidence. And they're like, nope, mm -mm, that's not a thing. You know, despite the fact that I probably barely graduated high school, if that, I am confident that my opinion is superior to that of empirical evidence. Like, what do these fucking scientists and doctors know? They don't. They don't know nothing. But my trailer park education, I know everything. I, it makes me so rationally angry because, th- like, there's nothing. There's nothing you can say that will change their mind.
1: That's the funny thing about ignorance.
0: And you know how I am. You know how I am. You know how I need things to be correct, and it just ugh, can't stand it. So. We're now, okay, we've moved through. We're now in summer of 1999. We've fast fast forwarded a little bit. And Scott is still acting out. (laughs) No idea where he gets that. So he's still putting the weird fake blood on the wall. He's gotten caught with several shanks, which he was making out of melted toothbrushes and random pieces of metal he's somehow accumulated. He also started paying real good attention to things around the jail, much like he had memorized Jerry Johnson's nighttime routine. He knew what time the guards did everything. He knew what order they did everything in. So he decided to pull an Andy dufresne (laughs) he had stashed, <laughs> he had st- Hopefully people know what that reference is. If you're listening to True Crime, you should know who he, trust he your is. Wife. So he stashed a small blade in a hole in his mattress. And at night, he would stand on the toilet in his cell all night and saw on one of the bars over his windows. And right before it was time for the 5 a.m. cell check, he would make a paste out of toothpaste and cigarette ash that so would be gray, same color as the bars. And he would use that to cover the spots he had sawed on the bar at night, which again.
1: That is incredibly ingenious kudos to that gentleman
0: like this is a guy that he could barely read and write but he obviously was gifted in this way and he could have used it for good but he did not so i feel
1: like um, the skill set that i use to get good at what i do low-key is very similar to that skill set that like weird ingenuity because there are a lot of times i didn't have the skills at the time to do things and i just kind of didn't did it the way I thought it should probably be done and achieved really good results, if not better results through just ingenuity.
0: This is a hot take that is absolutely not a hot take. It's lukewarm at best, but I'm someone who has built their entire life around education. I love school. I'm only good at school, but college is not for everybody. And we have this in society, we have this idea of what intelligence looks like. There are a lot of different kinds of intelligence. Like I could never do what you do. I can write a 20 page paper in four hours and make a 100 on it, but I cannot do what you do. Hell, I can't even put pictures up on the wall because I can't figure out, like, you had to decorate the Christmas tree for me because it causes too much panic because of I can't, I don't know where to put the ornaments. And I can't explain that in a way that makes you just sense. You put them
1: on the branches.
0: You can't, I can't do that. I can't just put, do that.
1: You, just, you sit them on there. No. And then you look for the naked spots and go, oh, I ought to put me another wiener dog ornament right gender. <laughs>
0: because it's we have nothing else we have like oh
1: there's a shitload of wiener dogs on our Christmas wiener
0: dogs and unicorns probably for our kid but so like the skills and and the knowledge that you use for your your line of work and also the 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 skills that scott is putting to use in this story uh, this part of the story like those are very valuable and college ain't gonna teach you those those are like innate, basically, and to an extent, you you know you might could go to a trade school and maybe get into a program that would enhance them. But moral of the story is like you can be successful and not go to college. Yeah. But, but put that put those skills to good use.
1: I've only been to one college class at the University of Alabama.
0: That was. I feel like ne- that sums up our luck better. So, side tangent. I'll explain. Obviously, I went to school at the University of Alabama. If Rob came to visit. One weekend, and I don't know why did I have you come to class with me just for shits and giggles.
1: Uh, well, I was up there visiting, and you just you had, had I was off work or something, and you had that one class, and then you were done for the week. It was a Friday, I believe, a Thursday or a Friday, and it was the last class of the afternoon or something like that. And I just got into Tuscaloosa, and we were just bullshitting, and you were like, I was like, can I go? I I'll go, and I was like, I'll sit in the back and be all quiet. I won't say nothing. And you were like, I'll give you a pencil and a notebook just to make sure you look like you're doing something. And we went in there. and
0: But here's the thing about that class. so it was, uh, And
1: everything changed.
0: It was a human development class. I think it was like adolescent development or whatever. And normally, and I love this professor. She's one of my favorites. But normally, we would just take notes. Like, she would talk and take notes. Well, guess what? The one class period the whole semester where we had to, like, get up and talk to each other. It was that day.
1: Your boy faked it till he made it that day. <laughs>
0: Like I was, I was like, Are I you immersed fucking myself kidding me! In a
1: full college student experience.
0: Like all the days to do a full class activity would be the one day that you were there with me. That was just—it's so it's so funny to me. Um, I got myself completely off track, but we're gonna go back to it. So he's Scott's using his ingenuity.
1: He made the bar paste
0: right. Like that was, re- yeah. I mean, that's really smart. Toothpaste and cigarette ash because it's got to be gray. Like, yeah. I mean. It's a shame. It's a shame. It took him about a week to saw through the first bar, and eventually he got to a point where he could make his great escape. So on July 6, 1999, after the 2.30 a.m. cell check, Scott removed the bars above his window, pushed out the acrylic window, and squeezed his little toothpick self through the window and dropped about six feet down to the ground. Now, for some reason, he had decided to to forego pants. So he was just in his t-shirt and his skivvies, when he casually walked up to the 10-foot-high chain-link fence surrounding the jail, and he tried to find a good spot to saw through with his handy-dandy little escaping blade that he'd used to cut the bars. Took took about two hours, then he was able to squeeze himself through the fence, and he was a free man. How no one noticed this guy, standing in his underwear, sawing on a chain-link fence for two hours in a jail yard is beyond me. But uh, it was worth noting that Scott was not the first person to escape from the Tombs County Jail. He was the third. It would come out later that when the jail was built in 1993, somebody had cut corners. And instead of installing two-inch solid steel bars over the cell windows, they'd installed bars that were an eighth of an inch thick and hollow. So that worked out well. So (laughs) jailers found Scott's empty cell during the 5 a.m. rounds and were like, oh, shit. And they immediately sent people out to search for the fugitive. According to an an anecdote...
1: you think think that a a prison builder would go... Yeah, we're really over budget. We need to cut some corners. Yeah, but we can't. We can't cut the corner that literally keeps the prisoners inside of here. That's the that's the one corner that we can't cut, there, Jim. So we got to find another option.
0: So this is completely unsubstantiated. One hundred percent unsubstantiated. It's just it 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 made me think. I don't know if you remember, but it might have been in Alabama. It might have been in like Etowah County where it came out that the sheriff was like taking money out of like the food I think that they were supposed to give to the prisoners and like giving them like super low quality food so that he could pocket the money. So part of me was like, I wonder if maybe somebody in charge like cut corners and they took the money. Like it would not at all be shocking to me, sadly. So according to an anecdote in Fear Comes to Town, a deputy who was driving around searching for Scott actually saw him on some train tracks and Scott waved at him and then he ran off into some pine trees and the deputy wasn't able to catch him. I'm like, that sounds like something from like a movie. Like, Hey deuces, um, I was waving, but no one can see it. I'm, so
1: it sounds like to me that he was trying to act inconspicuous. You know what I mean? Like, yeah,
0: hey, what's up, brother? Maybe, but he's in his underwear and his gel-appointed T-shirt or whatever. I guess so. So every law enforcement agency in the state of Georgia was on the lookout for Scott, and they were using everything in their ar- in their arsenal, including helicopters and police puppies. So he was eventually found. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they called? <laughs> they officially they were police puppies. So he he was eventually found. Walking down Highway 15 near Vidalia, 12 hours after escaping, because as it turns out, he hadn't thought past the breaking out of the jail part. He had no plan for what he was going to do. So he just walked around, and apparently he had, like, crawled through some, like, brambles and shit, so his arms were all, like, scratched up and bleeding, and he was, like, sunburned, and he was not having a good time. So, so which, fuck him. How he do desert- you
1: go from cigarette ash toothpaste glue to... Hell, I don't know. (laughs) You know
0: what I mean? Because I think that he... What are we doing,
1: dude?
0: He was just very, like... Maybe he was only able to focus on one goal at a time, and he just, like, zero forethought. And I know how you feel about forethought. He had none of it. My
1: goodness. Forethought. Listen, this is my PSA, ladies and gentlemen. Forethought will save your ass. If you take five minutes to think about a big thing before you do it, or even... A minute to think about a little thing before you do it or how you want to do it or how you want to approach to do it boy i just i cannot stress it enough forethought is your very best friend that and time management go and continue
0: yeah he did not uh he did not have the forethought so when they got scott back to the jail they put him under 24 hours surveillance and worked on getting him transferred to the to walton county which is where the trial would ultimately take place which i think is close-ish to athens because they mentioned athens but I don't remember Walton County, but I also didn't care to learn much about Georgia because I didn't like living there. No offense to my Georgia people. In the meantime, he kept saying and doing weird shit. He called up GBI agent Dean McManus with the great name, and he told him, quote, nine little piggies, four dead, end quote, which seemed to correspond to the number of people in the Daniels' home and the number of people that he murdered that night. He also started telling people in the jail, quote, I've killed and I'll kill again. I'm not through collecting souls. I'm the soul collector, end quote. Which keep in mind, this guy, skinny as a rail, just scraggly looking, white trash trailer park kid. Like he ain't intimidating to nobody. Like you snuck up on those people in the middle of the night. You're not Billy Badass. So quit trying to act like you are. Someone should have kicked his ass. By and large, all of his weird behavior quit when he got transferred to the Walton County Jail, though, because he wasn't comfortable in the new environment. Like, he didn't know the people, he didn't know the routines, he didn't know the schedule, so he didn't feel confident in, like, all the shit that he had done before. So, the trial finally got started in late August of 1999. The defense conceded that, yeah, he, he clearly did it, but he should be found guilty but mentally ill, like the doctors had suggested after a psych evaluation. The the defense also got into a fight with DFACS over the files that they had about Scott and his family's history. They the defense wanted to show that he was brought up in an extremely unhealthy environment and that his experience, along with his mental illness, should be considered mitigating circumstances. DFACS did not want to release those files because they felt like it undermined Fax's confidentiality with their clients, and they didn't want it to you know impact future situations or or make people not trust them. Well, ultimately, the judge sided with the defense and allowed the files to be submitted as evidence. Another battle the defense tried to fight was not allowing certain pictures of the crime scene, specifically a picture of Bryant in his bed. The judge decided the judge sided with the prosecution this time under the condition that the photo would only be shown when the medical examiner testified about Bryant's wounds. Things already weren't looking good for Scott. Like, you had his confession, you had the testimony from Amber, Amanda, and Brooke, and they found his DNA on the cigarette butts that he had smushed into the carpet. But the the crime scene photos were probably the final nail in the coffin, because you can't see a little boy whose head doesn't exist anymore and not be like, you need to die, sir. So on September 2nd, 1999, after 20 to 40 minutes of testimony, sources differed, Jerry Scott Heidler was found guilty of four counts of malice murder, one count of kidnapping with bodily injury, Two counts. Did of you kid- mean
1: deliberation there? What'd I say? Uh, testimony. I did. I did my job.
0: You did your job. Thank you. Yes. I said testimony <laughs> because I wrote testimony in my notes, but that word should have been deliberation. Son of a bitch. Thank you for catching that.
1: Work makes the dream work.
0: Yep. So, uh, four counts of malice murder, one count of kidnapping and bodily injury, two counts of kidnapping, one count of aggravated sodomy, one count of aggravated child molestation, one count of molestation, and one count of burglary. So now that they had the verdict, they needed to start the penalty phase. So according, our dog's making noises again, according to the Georgia Penal Code, if a person is convicted of a crime that is punishable by death, so in this case, malice murder, the person can only be sentenced to death if the jury also finds them guilty of at least one aggravating circumstance. So in this case, the jury also found him guilty of aggravated sodomy and aggravated child molestation. So this is basically just Georgia's fancy way of explaining the murder plus other bad shit formula for capital murder and a capital murder sentence. Since they don't really have capital murder, but that's basically what this is. So the aggravated
1: say it sounds hella like capital murder to me.
0: That's what it is. They just don't call it that. Um, And in this case, the bad shit is aggravating circumstances. So during the sentencing phase, which took place the afternoon of the trial, The prosecution and defense are given the opportunity to present their arguments for or against death, life, or life without parole. In Scott's case, the prosecution argued for death and reiterated that Scott had shown that he was a menace to society. I mean, he had literally broken out of prison. District Attorney Malone also made the very valid argument that yes, Scott did have a shitty childhood, but so did Kim Daniels, yet they made very vastly different life decisions. The defense said a lot of shit that I did not vibe with. First of all, in terms of Scott's prison break, they argued that he wasn't the only person that had broken out of Tombs County's jail. And he also wasn't the only person to make weapons in prison. What the hell kind of defense is that? Yeah, he did a shitty thing, but like everybody other, was
1: doing it. Other
0: people also did shitty things, so we don't need to pay attention to the shitty thing that he did. Like, are you are you serious? Then, oh my lord, the argument that made me that it it raised my blood pressure was the defense's closing argument centered around mercy and how the jury should give Scott mercy because he had shown mercy by not killing Amber, Amanda, and Brooke. As quoted in Fear Came to Town, the defense attorney said, and I shit you not, quote, you've heard the testimony about that river down there, the Altamaha River. It's the biggest river in Georgia. It's wild, ladies and gentlemen, and it's deep and it runs swift. If Jerry Scott Heidler were as evil as that prosecutor is trying to make you believe, those children's bodies would have been fished out of there. But he sent them for he set them free. End quote. And that's why I don't fuck with defense attorneys. He he sh- he showed mercy. He literally exploded an eight-year-old's head, and then he molested and sodomized a ten-year-old, and then he left three little girls in the middle of nowhere barefoot in nightgowns in fucking December. Like how was how was that mercy? I can't I can't believe this man literally got up in front of people and said that and that someone didn't punch him in the face.
1: It's pretty wild.
0: It made me very angry. So thankfully, the jury showed Scott the same amount of mercy that he showed Kim, Danny, Jesse, and Bryant, and they sentenced him to death. And although Scott had shown absolutely no interest or emotion throughout the entire trial, he did break down crying when the judge read, read his death sentence. Poor pitiful him. Jerry Scott Hodler sits on death row at the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification State Prison, which is a kind of a weird name, in Butts, <laughs> sorry, Butts County, Georgia. <laughs> They have a Butts County, like B-U-T-T-S, <laughs> Butts. I'm sorry, I'm not mature enough for that. Unfortunately, I wonder Scott... if they have a
1: flatulence way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. Unfortunately, Scott has been deemed too mentally unstable to execute. Because, Like we talked about earlier, it's unconstitutional to execute people that are really mentally ill. So an execution date will be set when or if his mental illness is stabilized. Scott has never said what his true motive was for the murders. So we don't know why he did it. Because again, when he went there, he had not talked to them in two years. So, as for the remaining, I know. As for the remaining Daniel's children, there was a bit of a custody kerfuffle around uh, after Kim and Danny's death. First, although child psychologists had recommended keeping the children together. Kim's biological children, Amber and Brooke, were separated from Amanda, Corey, and Gabriel, the foster children. Amanda and Corey, they were actually biological siblings. And they ended up being adopted by Kim's adoptive parents, the Driggers, which I thought was sweet because they kind of considered the Driggers their grandparents, like all of the little Daniels kids. And baby Gabriel was adopted by a family out of state after going back into the foster care system. Kim's sister, Connie, really, really wanted custody of Brooke and Amber but Danny and Kim's will specified that Danny's sister, Debbie, would be the children's guardian if anything ever happened to them. And it it really broke Connie. Like she had to quit her job. It She said her husband said that she was basically a totally different person because she had lost her sister that she had just within the past less than 10 years had gotten back together with. And she was hoping to have, you know, her daughters as a piece of her. And they were like, nope, goes to the other sister or goes to Danny's sister. Things were rough uh, for Amber and Brooke. You know, in addition to the grief of losing their parents, Amber had to deal with the trauma of her assault and Brooke had to cope with losing her other half. In the book, Fear Came to Town, the author told a story about how when Brooke and Bryant were in foster care and they were real little, Brooke couldn't talk. And so Bryant, he could talk and he would basically translate what Brooke wanted to adults they truly were each other's best friend. And as the book noted, Brooke had to, quote, start learning how to live each day without her twin, the little boy who had given her a voice, end quote. It would be hard enough to lose a sibling, but that the bond and relationship and connection between twins, especially at, a, at, a, at an age like that, is just, I can't, I can't imagine. That's so, my heart breaks for her. So because Danny had legally adopted Brooke and Amber, they were entitled to his assets, which included the house on Dasher Street. When Amber was 20 years old, she decided to move into the house with her fiancé, kind of in like a way of reclaiming like what had happened. Yeah. She told a story to the author of Fear Came to Town that a fire had broken out in a shed on the property, and it was so hot that it had melted the tires on the tractor in the shed. But miraculously, Kim's old stereo, like her radio that Danny had gifted her and that had become one of Amber's most prized possessions, was completely untouched and undamaged by the fire. And that was really special to her because she... When she went in, that's what she was afraid of, that, you know, this thing that meant so much is going to be destroyed. And it wasn't when other things that shouldn't have melted were. So Amber was interviewed for the show Shattered and also the show Homicide for the Holidays, which is a weird concept for a show. Yeah. But I, I paid three dollars to watch it. So and she retold her experience of the early morning hours of December 4th, 1997. And they are heartbreaking. Like it is it's awful. And she doesn't even she doesn't go into details at all. But. What she does say is just, oh, my God, it's I can't. In the Shattered episode, Amber mentioned that she wasn't allowed to see the bodies of her parents after the murders. So she felt like she didn't get closure. And for a a while, she thought that Kim couldn't take care of her anymore, like before, and that, that she just let the kids go and was trying to give them a better life without her being around. Like it happened when she was earlier, which how heartbreaking is that? That in your little kid mind, you just think that you've been abandoned. The interviewer. It's rough. I know the interview in the episode, the interviewer in the episode asked if Amber had ever seen the crime scene photos. And she said no. And they told her that they had copies if she wanted to look at them. And so she did. Thankfully, they only showed her the picture of Kim and Danny in the bed. And they're mostly covered up by the blanket. So you don't really see the full extent of their injuries. And they didn't show her Bryant and Jessica, at least like not on camera. And you could tell just by looking at her that being able to see those pictures gave her a little bit of peace of like, okay. I have closure. I have a little bit of closure now. So there's one last piece of the story that I want to talk about. And that is deputy Michael Harlan. So he was also interviewed for shattered and homicide for the holidays. And again, he is the man who he's the deputy who came upon the crime scene on shattered. He said that he was the one who'd actually like transported Scott to death row. And he told the attorney, the district attorney's office. So he
1: found, he was the first on scene and ended up transporting that kid to death row.
0: Yes. It's a real small County. Oh, OK. Yeah.
1: I guess you said it's 300 people.
0: Yeah. he. Well, that's in Santa Claus. But even still, the biggest town, I think, it, is Vidalia and its population is like 10,000, maybe. So not a very big place at all. So Debbie Harlan had told the district attorney's office that when Scott was finally executed, he wanted a front row seat when it happened. He said, I think I deserve that. And he added that it would be his final closure. Well, sadly, Deputy Harlan, later Captain Harlan, would not get that chance as he passed away in March of 2020 at age 58. Makes me wonder if COVID, because it said a sudden illness. He retired as captain from the Tombs County Sheriff's Department in 2019. He had been a member of the Defenders Law Enforcement Motorcycle Club in Dublin, Georgia. What I found most interesting, though, and I've been wanting to tell you this all week, but I didn't. Is that Deputy-slash-Captain Harlan was a 1979 graduate of Sachs High School in Sachs, Alabama. Because as it turns out, he was born and raised in Anniston, Alabama, and he moved to Tombs County, Georgia, in 1985, first working as a firefighter with the Vidalia Fire Department before switching careers and working for the Sheriff's Office. So I was like, what are the chances?
1: That's crazy. Right? What a link.
0: I know, right? So that was a very sad and heartbreaking and frustrating case of the Santa Claus murders. So Rob, do you have any final thoughts about the case, foster care, any any of that stuff?
1: If your heartstrings have been tugged about conversations we've had about foster care and you feel compelled in your heart to do something. There are plenty of organizations out there, if you just do a little Google search, I'm sure, that you can find a way to get kids like suitcases or duffel bags or backpacks to put their shit in i cannot begin to express how important that that is just i, I mean rolling around in trash bags is a bummer with trash bags is a bummer yeah a I big don't, giant bummer
0: for those of you listening that aren't familiar with foster care like that the kids are given trash bags to carry all their belongings in, and, and it's <sighs> I've said it for y'all. My husband can read my mind because I'd literally in my notes written talk about backpacks. So in the show notes and also on the Instagram page, I will link to some organizations that do the backpacks, and we will also be making a donation to one of the organizations uh, on behalf of the podcast. Because like it, it's one little dignity that you can give these children of not having to walk around with all of their entire life in a trash bag, like. Get them a bag, get them a, a backpack, something. So those will be in the show notes. Any any other thoughts, sir?
1: Um, shouts out to all the foster kids and, and kids in the system out there. I mean, I feel your pain. Life's hard. Keep on digging, brother or sister. <laughs>
0: or or a non-binary person. Or
1: or non-binary. Yeah.
0: So thank y'all so much for listening to the It's Murder Y'all podcast. As always, sources for this episode will be listed in the show notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, tell your mama. We'll see y'all next week. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise.
1: Merry Christmas, you filthy animals.